0: Treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle witty Get ready to go against the grain. Another busy day.
1: I actually Thursdays, should
0: stop saying that.
1: I feel like Thursdays, though, are the big dump. Everything happens yeah. on a Thursday.
0: Yeah, then... I think I told you once, when I was at the CIA, when we would do our Friday briefings, there was nothing, like literally nothing going on, because the weekend in the Middle East is either Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. or Thursday, Friday, and so everything was closed, it's it's almost the same here where it's really busy on Thursday because everybody's trying to get everything done. And then Friday kind of backs off. Friday,
1: and, you don't get any news until 5 p.m.
0: That's right. And then you get a bunch of important stories. That's right. That like, everybody is, is going to ignore We're all weekend. already. Yeah, yeah. But there really is a lot going on, today, yeah. um, And we have a quite a full show, which is funny because when I woke up this morning and uh, and logged on to look at the news, it didn't look like there was much of anything happening. Oh, no. That turned out to be very wrong. We're going to talk about uh, the conflict, the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia, which is not really being covered in the mainstream media. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot happening there. A lot of people are dying. A lot of people are starving. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something that uh, I think is largely being ignored.
1: And, of course, uh, we just had the TPLF uh, steal a bunch of fuel and and fuel trucks. Yeah just uh, took them. which you know which you you can go look at the uh, the director of the world food program get on twitter with a pal- palpably angry post that has really not been picked up mm-hmm. by a, a lot of uh, western media what, because yes. i think it complicates it complicates the story of that war which they would like to be a really neat narrative about oh my good God. guys and bad guys that's
0: so true that's so true our state department really is one of the worst offenders. they really really want there just to be very clearly cut Clearly drawn lines between good guys and bad guys. And it's just not simple like that. And speaking of uh, not simple, you know, we've talked a couple of times about things apparently seemingly going better between the United States and Iran. Mm -hmm. We're talking specifically about the JCPOA and that it looks like we're close to an agreement. And then on the other hand, we're bombing each other. Mm hmm. So we said yesterday on the show that the uh, Iranians had bombed some American site in northeastern Syria. This was in retaliation for an earlier bombing. Well, last night we bombed Iranian sites. We killed two fighters tied to the IRGC. We're going to talk to one of our guests about that. But the reason why I say it's complicated is because on the one hand— It looks like things are going really well with the JCPOA. On the other hand, we're trying to kill them and they're trying to kill us. And the president of the United States goes to Jeddah to talk about a regional alliance to kill them on a bigger scale. And so we don't have any idea where we're going. Uh, There's going to be a lot in the news in the next day or several days about Donald Trump and these classified documents at Mar a Lago. We expect that today. The magistrate judge uh, for the Central District of Florida is going to take receipt of the proposed redactions in the affidavit. Uh, I highly doubt that he will release the document today. What he's going to do is to go through it to decide which redactions are legitimate and which redactions are a little too much. He may agree to accept all the redactions. We're going to talk to one of our guests about what goes into something like this. But I can tell you, do you remember when Valerie Plame wrote her memoir and uh, the CIA just did not want this thing to be published? Well, I bought it. I wanted to read it. I was in the process of writing my first book. And I remember laying in bed. I was reading the book in bed, laying next to my wife and i finished it and she said how was it and i said i honestly don't have any idea what i just read <laughs>
1: <laughs> cuz there was so much that couldn't be said
0: there was so much that was redacted like you would you would be reading you know a, a story and you're a couple of pages into the story and then the next 12 pages are blacked out and then it's the end of the chapter wow. and you're like i have no idea what just happened the whole book was like that yeah so, I'm thinking probably this affidavit's going to be like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, this new reorganization at CDC, which is a bigger deal than most people think. Uh, we're going to talk about the new abortion trigger laws. There was a development in Idaho yesterday that is also a big deal. Uh, the economy. You know, oh. it's funny how this is being spun in such different ways. Can I
1: give you some headlines? It's Please. just very funny. This is just like if you Google, I don't even remember what the search was, right? It was like G- US GDP or something. Uh-huh. And you get uh, you get four headlines, four different headlines uh, that pop up in that first little box. Uh, Not—no warning that <laughs> that information is changing rapidly, don't worry. Uh, but you can clearly see the news outlets are not sure how to handle today's economic news, right? So Fox goes with, GDP shank, shrank at revised 0.6% rate in second quarter, signaling U.S. remains in technical recession. Okay, fine. CNN, second quarter GDP declined less than previously thought, but economy is still shrinking. Okay. Bloomberg. Key U.S. growth measures diverge, complicating recession debate and The New York Times knowing where its bread is buttered, I
0: guess.
1: (laughs) U.S. growth has continued, one official measure shows, which is funny. But what is going on is that the U.S. GDP for the second quarter did shrink. It shrank less than the revised or less than the reading from uh, July, right, that forecast. Now the figure is 0.6 percent. The previous had been 0.9 percent. Uh, it's the second quarter of contraction, which is the rule of thumb for recognizing a recession. Yes. There has been this scramble lately to be like, well, that's not the official recognition. The official one comes from a board that gets together and blah, blah, blah. So like, fine. But generally speaking, two, two quarters of uh, ret- uh, contraction is a recession. Um, but what is happening that is genuinely weird, I guess, is that gross domestic income is increasing. Right, And it increased by an annualized rate of 1.4 percent in the second quarter. And usually these things go in the same direction. And so when they diverge, people are like, well, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, we had Jack Rasmus on the show, economist Jack Rasmus, saying, look at what's happening in housing. This is a classic recession. Yes. Don't let people tell you that the indicators are all over the place. Um But you do have The New York Times making the case that income is a better measure of economic health because the government tracks it in more detail, which is news to me. I did not know. (laughs) But I—okay, if you say so. Um, If you average the numbers together, which it is is telling us people recommend, then you get slight growth. You know, again— You can you can also look at some other classic signs uh, of a recession in the housing market and other markets and say, okay, this is maybe this is not as complicated as it's being presented. I don't know. I mean, I really would like to talk to someone about what this could mean. And I do wonder if an economy that produces such extreme income inequality like ours is going to start producing freaky numbers no matter what. Over time. Right. And this is not so much post pandemic weirdness or. Uh, Ukraine war sanctions weirdness or whatever, but the result of just w- this like nutcase economy that's almost entirely financialized, yes, and where uh, most of our investment just goes to making weapons, you know, right? Like, I, but I, I couldn't tell you. It just seems like eventually uh, th- it, things are going to start to get weird if we are if we are allow people to again not not even earn fifteen dollars as a minimum wage and yet continue producing trillionaires. That's my that's my guess.
0: You know, I was surprised today at the vociferousness with which uh, the conservative media attacked this uh, student loan forgiveness thing. I mean, I expected that they would complain about it, but I'm I'm surprised at the bitterness I'm seeing on places like Fox News, which we have on one of the TVs here in the studio Um, on Twitter today. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody complains at all about billions and billions and billions of dollars to to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But you spend less than that to forgive student debt, and people are like, "Oh, well, what does that say about people who didn't borrow money to to study worthless uh, programs, or uh, you know, people who actually worked to pay off their stuff?" Oh, come on, you know.
1: And people are pointing out. I mean, you can uh, you could spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, finding instances of people complaining about student loan debt being revealed as having gotten um, PPP loans during sure. the pandemic that have been That's forgiven in much common. greater amounts, $100,000, right. $200,000. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is one example of this, but they're everywhere. Yes. Um, I think, oh, what's his name? Egghead, Bella, uh, Matt Iglesias, same thing, <laughs> uh, calling into question how much this is going to cost. People have been pointing out, you know, we we subsidize farms.
0: Uh, we do big we time.
1: We bail out people who live in flood zones. We bail yep. out people who live in storm zones. You know what I mean? Like this yep. is not. It's not as though this is unheard of. And that's right. Uh, yeah. Just come on. This is our education. Something. I mean, I do agree. It is pretty pointless to to do this if you also if we are also just going to sit back and watch tuition continue to climb. Um,
0: See, now that I feel bad about, I feel bad. I, I fully, completely support this decision to forgive. Ten thousand dollars of, of student loan debt. Yeah. I think $10,000 not enough, but the bigger problem is that it doesn't address the the core problem, yeah. which is the fact that um, it's so expensive now to go to college that it's virtually impossible. And that's for many what you people.
1: can't you can't ever do it. And that's why all of these measures are only ever they're only ever going to be one too small and two, uh, extremely brief right because what you can't do is challenge the philosophy that we all live under that anything can and should be done for profit it's yeah. why we can't reform our healthcare system it's why this is going to be really because once you say oh well we're going to we're going to carve out an exception here where we're going to say we we believe this thing should be done uh, provide people with medical care provide people with an education uh, regardless of of uh, whether it makes people money or not and then everyone starts to go oh well you, you think healthcare is more important than education or you think, uh, education is more important than, you know, pre pre K childcare, or you think healthcare is more important than nursing home care. And right. then it all starts to crumble, right. you know? And so you can't, you can't pull your finger out of that, out of that hole in the wall, no so matter true. what party you are, because you're both of the parties that we have here are, are just, uh, w- missioned tasked with upholding corporate profit.
0: You know, I saw a very funny, um, headline on fox this morning where it said critics uh biden tuition forgiveness just a ploy to win votes yeah like yeah. uh yeah yeah it's called politics yeah
1: and it was a campaign promise it was a, campaign, <laughs> it was a promise. campaign promise and also hey man we're living in weird times just do it
0: unbelievable can i
1: tell you a story that caught my eye that i think is is very funny um, Please. Or in indicative, right, of just how we're constantly uh, working against ourselves. Texas has blacklisted a bunch of companies, uh, including BlackRock, uh, USB, a bunch of big financial Black companies. Rock. For allegedly. Yeah, right. BlackRock here are being set up as like uh, Pollyanna do-gooders, right? Oh, my um, God. But the the reason is that they are allegedly boycotting Texas's fossil fuel industry. And Texas last year uh, had a law come into effect that the comptroller is required to name financial institutions and funds that he believes are not doing business with energy companies so that any state money, state funds can divest from them. Government entities Uh are required, with some exceptions, to divest from them if they stay on the list past certain legally mandated deadlines. And so Texas now has this list of 10 financial companies and 350 investment funds to ditch uh, and among them is bl- noted bleeding heart, uh, BlackRock, <laughs> and this is all this is all about the ESG movement in finance: uh-huh. uh, environment, social, and government. Yes. Right? We've talked about this before. This is like the CRT now of of finance. It is, um, and like the ESG absolutely is uh, mostly a greenwashing exercise, right? Like you can't. Sure. These companies are bad. They do bad things. You can't, they don't. They're not going to turn on a dime and become sort of altruistic, right? If BlackRock is doing it. <laughs> just to make money. Um, But Texas is now uh, talking about it as though it is, uh, you know, some George Soros-funded boogeyman. They're saying the ESG movement has produced an opaque and perverse system in which some financial companies no longer make decisions in the best interest of their shareholders or their clients, but instead use their financial clout to push a social and political agenda shrouded in secrecy. And so, again, I would like to point out uh, the definition of best interests here is extremely narrow and encompasses only immediately piling up more greenbacks, right? I think you could say it is actually in their shareholders' best interests to live on a planet that's not on fire. I would and say where, so. That every inch is not polluted, right? And where people live in some measure of equality, so we have less competition for resources or whatever. But like, of course, interest can only be in the next five minutes, can I make $100,000? Uh, and I just think it's really funny. So like, here here's where we are in trying to use our existing economic mechanisms to affect some kind of change. Right. If you if you try set up this thing where you try to encourage these big companies to only invest in good, good uh, industries and whatever, and immediately you have the states
0: that rely on these industries saying, well, fine, we're not going to work with you. Right. Right. Yeah. And what about this uh, this thing in Arizona now?
1: Oh, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to talk about that uh,
0: a little later with one of our guests. this is important. Let's let's save it for our guests. No, well,
1: I mean, it is. uh, It's about Morningstar. Uh, Arizona is accusing the Morningstar Financial Services Company of violating its asinine anti-BDS law. It's also related to ESG because they allege that Morningstar's ESG rating system uses quote anti-Israel sources. And punishes companies for doing business (laughs) in Israel, which uh, bears mentioning, is called by many human rights groups, including Israeli ones, an apartheid state, right? That's right. And and absolutely, uh, you know, which justifies, I think, uh, boycotting them. Yes. And and ranking companies that do business with them lower on a social justice scale, right? So, you know, I mean, all that's happening is the state will not invest in these companies. They can still do business, right? They're not being uh, like—they're not being shut down, but it just, you know, it, it just goes to show the hypocrisy of some of our uh, ideas about freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And they're doing all of this with the money of the citizens, right? They're doing this with the, the taxes of people of Texas and the taxes of the people of Arizona. That's right. So, I want
0: to, I want to come back if if I can. I know mm-hmm. we have just a couple of minutes, but I want to come back to Donald Trump right? Right. and um, and what's been happening at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Trump went on to what's it called, Truth Social, I think. Mm-hmm. Um this is That's about it. 40 minutes ago. Can't wait. And he wrote even though I am as innocent as a person can be and despite my campaign being spied on by the radical left the FISA court being lied to and defrauded I don't know what the heck he's talking about all of the many hoaxes and scams that were illegally placed on me by very sick and demented people and without even mentioning the many crimes of Joe and Hunter Biden all revealed in great detail in The Laptop from Hell, it looks more and more like the fake news media is pushing hard for the sleaze to do something that should not be done. What? Now, those were a lot of words. What does that mean? But what in the world does that mean? I've been thinking about it for the last 40 <laughs> minutes. I think he's getting scared. Yeah. You know, he he attacks here. He says how innocent he is. He He's as innocent as a person could possibly be. Mm-hmm. He attacks the radical left, whatever that is, um, says the FISA court was lied to and defrauded. No idea what that means. He said that there are many hoaxes and scams that were illegally placed on him by sick and demented people. No clue what he's talking about. Uh, He complains about Joe and Hunter Biden and the Hunter Biden laptop. Okay, that's that's a legit complaint. Uh, And says the fake news media is pushing hard for the sleaze, and he capitalized sleaze, to do something that shouldn't be done. Is the sleaze Merrick Garland? Is the sleaze this magistrate judge in Florida? I think the bottom line here is Donald Trump is worried. Yeah. And this was his way of lashing out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's saying they're trying to circumvent the Presidential Records Act, which protects him.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. What he's using. that was a that was a follow up. I'm yeah. going to call it a tweet because I don't know what it is. A truth. But a, a truth. Yeah. He just texted Presidential Records Act. Yeah. It's like, buddy, you keep violating the Presidential Records Act. And somebody, uh, Ron Filipowski tweeted, that's like John Gotti tweeting, RICO Act. Mm hmm. hmm. It's like, what are you doing?
1: Do you want to just do you wanna just go straight to our next guest and skip sure. this first break since sure. we're since we're on a Donald Trump roll here? Yeah, why not? Is she on the line?
0: Yes, she oh, is. Oh good, okay. Well, the Justice Department is expected today, as I said, to file a heavily redacted copy of the affidavit used to justify the search warrant on former President Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt will decide what, if anything, should be made public. The Justice Department argued last week that the redactions would likely be so heavy that the document would be meaningless to most people, and to redact less would jeopardize the investigation against Trump. Meanwhile, a Justice Department attorney said that the affidavit contains, quote, significant grand jury information, unquote, and that revealing it to Trump, his attorneys, or his supporters could jeopardize not only the investigation, but perhaps even the grand jury members themselves. Meanwhile, the Justice Department released an unredacted copy of a memo written by former Attorney General William Barr justifying his decision to not charge Trump with obstructing the Russia probe in 2019. An earlier memo recommended against charging Trump, but the new memo shows that Barr had already made up his mind and had never seriously considered charging the former president in the first place. We're joined from Minnesota by Colleen Raleigh. Colleen is a former senior FBI agent, and is a renowned whistleblower. She was Time Magazine's Person of the Year, along with two other whistleblowers in 2002. Welcome back, Colleen. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's been a little while. Uh, I want to start with these documents, if we could, Colleen. We've all seen heavily redacted documents. In some cases, like the Senate torture report, you can pretty much piece together the story. In others— the redactions are so heavy that it's just impossible to understand what the memo's saying. The DOJ is already warning us that the redactions will be significant. What do you expect this memo to look like? Do you think we'll be able to learn anything new from it?
2: I think you have a uh, preliminary initial um, uh, point that is not being made at all by the the, the national media, but which you and I, of course, have heard several times, even out of the mouths of Daniel Ellsberg and several (laughs) high-level officials who worked in the classification system, and that is that there's about a 90 percent over-classification system allows you to err on the side of stamping everything secret. In fact, that's what they want you to do. So it ends up to be lots and lots of things are overclassified. And as you know, improperly classified, even to cover up crimes like the torture. Right. Uh, like torture and to prevent embarrassment. You know, if someone... Like myself, I was a FOIA officer, and I wielded the black pen. (laughs) I, you know, that I blacked out names and things, and I, on occasion argued with headquarters that we should release information because otherwise, by blacking everything out, we it led to conspiracy theories. Yeah, true. misunderstood. And so, you know, as someone like that, I think that we probably will not learn much. I think the one thing that we will have learned now just from uh, talking about it, is that there's a federal grand jury involved, and the grand the involvement at this stage of a grand jury because you, you can execute search warrants without a grand jury, I think it means that this is pointing towards indictment uh, but you know that's the the, the the only thing about grand jury is that um, it signals that this is you know this is the goal um, and the big media here's here's the other I think challenge we have you know the the big media has been Trump deranged syndrome for a long time, all these five years of various, you know, uh, impeachments and uh, FBI investigations, frankly, relied on nothing flimsy. They were just hoaxes. I think the best article I've seen analyzing all of this is Aaron Maté, and he had an article entitled, The FBI versus Trump, Who's the Loser? The Public.
0: Mm. That's the bottom line. Wow. I'm going to find that. I have a lot of respect for Aaron. Uh, The the fight between Trump and the classified document centers uh, around the Espionage Act, we've talked about this a million times. The law was written in 1917 to combat German saboteurs. But over the last 15 years or so, it's been used mostly to target whistleblowers who speak to the media. Barack Obama prosecuted eight of us. Donald Trump prosecuted another five. Now the same law is apparently being used to target him. You know that I'm certainly not a Trump fan, but I personally don't think the Espionage Act should be used against anybody except if they're working for a foreign power. Do you see Donald Trump eventually being charged with espionage in this case? Or do you think that there will eventually be some sort of a political consideration where the Justice Department just decides it's not worth the risk of trouble? To charge him with espionage?
2: Well, I'm going to start with a slight correction. Okay. uh,
0: Because I don't
2: think the 1917 Espionage Act was actually written in order to uh, combat German saboteurs. Uh, Even on Wikipedia, if you look it up, uh, we'll. Uh, Wilson uh, caused this law to be passed because he wanted to intimidate, yes. stop anti-war dissent. That's right. Because guess what? He was violating his campaign promise of keeping the U.S. out of World War One, and there was a huge, a majority of the United of Americans against entering World War One.
0: And let me interrupt you there. Um, what you're talking about is exactly correct. That's why the Sedition Act was was passed just months after the espionage act and the espionage act contains section 793 and 794 794 is for spies but 793 you're exactly right it was used against socialists it was used against jehovah's witnesses it was even used against a hollywood theater and the producer of a movie went to prison because the movie was about the Revolutionary War and it portrayed British soldiers as cruel and President Wilson said that this may hurt American public opinion in support of the British in the First World War. The producer of the movie went to prison for three years. So you're exactly right and about Eugene that.
2: Debs and Eugene Debs.
0: And Debs. That's right.
2: I think there's even a, a case where somebody handing out Bible verses, machine to uh, hurt the effort to, of the draft. I mean, so and, and went to prison. So this this espionage act is extremely nefarious, and all these long years since it was really abused during after World War One, it was extremely abused. Um, it's been actually considered to be unconstitutional in that broadest interpretation that retention and sharing of Information with the media and the public for you know a good purpose. Uh, even you know, obviously, this could be interpreted to be sharing with in, inspector generals, for that matter. You know, if you really push the, the the words of the Espionage Act as Obama, uh, as Bush began, then Obama and then Trump, as they push this to the the greatest extent to go after a publisher like Julian Assange yep. and WikiLeaks, and there. And of course, it looks like that's happening right now. That That will, of course, end the First Amendment, so completely unconstitutional. I think the interpretation of the media all those years was correct one, and that, you know, unless the Supreme Court finally now says, you know, this is unconstitutional, unlawful, you cannot stop the First Amendment freedom of the press by using the Espionage Act. And unfortunately, the, the whole thing with Trump now and the use of the Espionage Act as a as a basis for this search has convinced most of your uh, people, again, with the Trump derangement syndrome and, you, you know, the, the Democrat establishment, I would I would say it's not the radical left at all. <laughs> I would say it's really the democrat establishment that's right who Has fallen under this thing now of revering the FBI and revering the CIA and the espionage act they've like flip flopped uh, but going back to your question about the the questions about Barr's memo, um, you know the in two thousand and nineteen it did not take the office of, of uh, uh, their office of of general counsel it did not take uh a, a brain—somebody with brains know that you cannot indict a sitting president. Right. Okay, so that was an easy call for Barr. They said, well, why did he already know this? Well, obviously, there's a law—you know, th- there was law preventing
0: that. So Yeah, and isn't that what, what the whole um, impeachment process is for? If If there's evidence that a president has committed a crime, it's supposed to be up to the House and Senate to take it up, not up to the attorney general to decide if the president should be indicted, right? Well, that's
2: exactly right, and that's what you know. Barr, and and, and not just Barr; everyone concludes that. I mean, that's that's the common understanding that protected Trump as a sitting president, and of course, it does not protect him now. I just wanted to mention the other reason in that memo that was um, something that that was almost never pointed out by the media at the time. And I sat here throwing shoes at my television. They would go into this because they, they were talking about indicting him for obstruction of justice. Right. OK, I'm very well aware of that that statute. And they were using things like his firing of Comey and everything else. But then the issue was there was no crime. How can you obstruct justice if, there, in fact, uh, Trump was always innocent of the charges that he was a spy for Russia? He was colluding with Russians. That was entirely debunked. And if you're an innocent person, uh, obviously, John, you will understand this. If you're innocent and accused of a crime, what do you do? You try to fight back. And they were using his, his efforts to, uh, to to fight back against these charges by talking with his attorney general, etc., as obstruction of a crime, when in fact there was no underlying crime. Yes. I, I think the media just, you know, when this memo comes out, they're just going to ignore that part of it it entirely um but in any event i just think that's a that's a huge thing and people you know have to understand you can't be staging you know it's like the entrapment cases that the fbi does mm-hmm. you know it's if- it's these, It's easy to kind of create crimes. And if you could create a crime by charging someone with a crime or leaking uh, false evidence of crime and then waiting for them to react and then calling it obstruction, can you imagine the chaos that would result?
0: How much trouble do you think Donald Trump is in? He's facing the this federal case uh, about the classified documents. He's got this election interference case in Georgia, and it's unclear really who the, who the ultimate target is there. It looks like it's Rudy Giuliani. And he's got the tax evasion case in New York, although it's, it's the Trump organization that's being targeted there. Um, surely these cases aren't just going to go away like magic. But then at the same time, the guy was the president of the United States. It's, it's hard to prosecute a president. In, in felony cases. Um, what do you think Trump is realistically looking at here? Do you think that perhaps the the goal is to hurt him enough that he can't run for president, but not necessarily to send him to prison?
2: Well, I want to comment on Giuliani because, you know, I have a <laughs> bit of shot in Freud for his uh, going down, essentially yeah. going off, you know, being pushed off his pedestal. Um, and the and I, I also find it amazing that the media never brings up the fact that they they are the ones who made him a hero. After yeah, 9/11, 9-11, he stick. Yeah, he staged uh, some photo shoots of him walking down the street. And, you know, Time magazine put him on their Person of the Year. And he was considered to be the next president and everything else. And now you see how he's really uh, slid down from this pedestal. And, and in fact, you know, he's going to have a hard time making a living. You know, maybe he'll have to go on Social Security, because I think he exhausted so much of his um, wealth by (laughs) all his divorces, you know, his costly divorces. (laughs) By the way, I worked for Giuliani for almost seven years in New York City, oh. a U.S. attorney at the time. I knew him a little bit, and I sure knew some of the inside, sordid inside backstories about him. And, you know, he was never a hero. Um, so anyway, that I just wanted to get into. I-
0: no, going going to a whole bunch of funerals doesn't make you a hero, right? I, I agree with that. And, you know, another thing, too, that I always was amused by that most most Americans I think don't know, is his father was a muscle guy for the Gambino crime family. And uh, I think that his his life as a prosecutor was a reaction against his father, with whom he never got along. And uh, I don't know, it's just my own little, my own amateur uh, uh, psychology there, I guess. Uh, well, tell me a little bit more about Giuliani. I was amused by this New York Times report uh, that was that was uh, covering his most recent divorce, his fourth divorce, uh, s- saying that uh, he's a he's a member of 14 country clubs and he spends ten thousand dollars a year on cigars and he needs seven hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain his current lifestyle. And he's also paying alimony to four wives. Uh, how, how's the guy going to make ends meet? The only reason he made any money at all. In the last, what, six years was because he was close to Donald Trump. It looks like he's finished.
2: He'd have a hard time going on Social Security. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, he should have tons of money from all the stuff, you know, his background and everything. But he has led this, uh, you know. By the way, who's that famous comedian who said it's all a club and we aren't in it?
0: Oh, that's um, right. <laughs>
2: Uh, And Giuliani, by the way, at least believed himself, he he certainly was in the club. He was in that club, lived this high-level lifestyle, thought he could make his own reality. In fact, Time Magazine did make their own reality with nothing but a photo shoot. He was never a hero. Um, But, you know, I don't expect that even Giuliani will face significant prison time. Uh, The reason is, goes back to that thing, it is all a club. And when you start going after internal power mongering fights in, 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 in this club can only go so far. And yeah, they can destroy his reputation, whatever, but I really would you know, at the most, you know, like some of the white-collar criminals, he would get the slightest little thing on the wrist, maybe. That that actually might also protect Trump. Uh, again, his little foray, you know, slight foray into this club of the elite rulers may offer him still some protection against prison. Certainly their goal—I think their real goal is to knock him off uh, power. That's That's for sure. Uh, and again,
0: I think so too. Wisconsin's uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson said yesterday, Colleen, that he's been approached by an FBI whistleblower who claims that the FBI leadership ordered investigating agents to not investigate the Hunter Biden laptop back in 2020, saying, quote, uh, "We're not going to change the outcome of this election." unquote. Does that sound plausible to you? And if it does, what happens next? Should there be an investigation of some sort?
2: Huh. There, Well, uh, there probably won't be an investigation, mm. again, going back to what I just said, because when right. you get to that power l- level thing, I wouldn't be surprised if that whistleblower is correct. I think that what happened is with, when that Hunter Biden laptop really with some unbelievable smoking guns and sorted stuff in there emerged, you saw all those uh, former colleagues, by the way, the, the high level intelligence people, like I don't even know, a hundred and some of them. They all signed and said, this is Russian disinformation. Oh, yeah. And as soon as they did that, it was impossible. There's only, you know, one media, one media tried to cover it. Glenn Greenwald had to leave the intercept. Yes. Even they would not cover the story. And it was all hushed up and quieted up. So, you know, we we always, you know, with the Trump derangement syndrome, it's easy to to fall into this effort, you know, claiming that he's the source of all evil. But there's also the thing, a a broken clock is right twice a a day. (laughs) And I think that, you know, with with some of this last these last years um, and certainly uh, Aaron Mate does a good job of, of just objectively going through all of the FBI's uh, line about you know t- they actually did lie to the FISA court Peter Strzok and whatever oh, yeah. a whole group of people and you know there, were pro- there probably were FBI people sitting there listening to Strzok and Lisa Page and, and McCabe and, and knowing that there were misrepresentations in the FISA affidavits, they they probably went, oh, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. And so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the the whistleblower uh, talking to Ron Johnson was correct on uh, the the deliberate uh, quashing of the investigation of Hunter Biden. You talk about public corruption.
0: Unbelievable. It it really is shocking. (laughs) Yeah, oh, exactly. I, I agree with you. It, but, it's but it's shocking. been normalized. It's been normalized. And normalized.
2: Mr. Hunter Biden, unfortunately, this kind of corruption in Washington has been normalized.
0: Indeed, it has. Indeed, it has. Well, thank you for that. That was really valuable. That was the voice of Colleen Rally. She joined us from Minnesota. Colleen is a former senior FBI agent and a renowned whistleblower. She was Time Magazine's Person of the Year, along with two other whistleblowers in 2002. Thanks for joining us, Colleen. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up.
1: Witty. I'm here with John Kiriaku. John, I had a couple more stories I wanted to get <laughs> so There is so much we are trying to slide in. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have been keeping an eye on, and it's—just uh, got to keep watching and see what happens. Yep. But of course, we've been talking all week about uh, this crisis uh, at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant yes. in Ukraine. All week, you know, of course, uh, the plant is being shelled. Russia's accusing Ukraine of doing it. Ukraine's accusing Russia of shelling territory that it controls. Uh, Ukraine's accusing Russia of hiding military equipment there inappropriately, making it a target. They've also—you know, there have been different reports, mostly coming from Ukrainian intelligence, about who is supposed to go into work on uh, whatever different day. And so just earlier today, we saw reports, again, from Ukraine's state energy company, Uh, that after a a fire uh, near—in the vicinity of the plant, right, on the territory of the nuclear plant, uh, that it had been disconnected from Ukraine's energy grid. So, again, these are reports that we were getting from one side in this conflict, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, that was a—yeah, I mean, that'll make a—that'll certainly—it's Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, right? I I have to assume that generates uh, quite a chunk of energy. Yeah. Um. I I know we have our next guest on the line, so we can go into this conversation. I wanted to talk about um, the the CDC's reorganization. It announced last week that it was preparing major changes in light of what CDC Director Rochelle Walensky called some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. So I want to get into that. I also want to talk about some new abortion trigger laws that have uh, come into force in several states. Uh, There was also a victory. For the federal government, in court, a, a small, a very narrow victory, uh, but a victory in blocking one of these laws from coming fully into force. And uh, and we might be able to talk a little bit more about uh, this. these reports of polio being found in the wastewater in cities around the world. Joining us for all these conversations is Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and an obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk first about— um, the the CDC reforms that are being proposed. But just to set the stage, you know, in light of our COVID-19 response, the ongoing monkey pox response, and, God forbid, a resurgence of polio, what did—in your opinion, what do you think the CDC got wrong that it shouldn't have? And what actually went well, if anything?
3: I'll start with the positive uh, first. I think what the CDC did well was partnering With community-based organizations like faith-based institutions to improve messaging around COVID, specifically around the vaccine, and also being able to pivot as we were rolling out the vaccine to make sure that, one, we addressed the distrust, particularly that the Black community had within uh, the medical community as it related to um, the vaccine and really addressing vaccine equity. I believe that in collaboration with the FDA, they did a good job of navigating the vaccine approval process in a relatively efficient manner, And then the initial definition of high transmission, when we were sort of figuring out based on red, um, orange, yellow, and green zones, how much COVID was happening in different spaces, at least at the beginning um, of the Biden administration. I think they did that very well, not so much um, during the Trump administration. But then, of course, there was a pivot in terms of what they got wrong. I think one of the things that they got wrong really significantly was always being in a position of reactivity, continuously reacted. To COVID. We're reacting to monkeypox. We're now reacting to an outbreak of polio instead of being in a a proactive space. are the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and I haven't seen as much prevention in these epidemics and pandemics as I would have expected. We know that COVID presented in, in Asia as early as December of 2019, but there was really no preparation or action for it until it arrived here in March of 2020, we saw the same thing with monkeypox. We were aware in Europe of monkeypox happening, in Africa of monkeypox cases happening. And we didn't do really anything until it was well within our country. June, we have to have basic public health guidance for the general public that's easily understood and that is evidence-based. And of course, all of the pivots, like first they told us not to wear a mask and then it put anything on your face that may protect you. From there, it was like, make sure you get in ninety five mask, and for the lay public, it facilitated a lot of distrust and and lack of of security in terms of the messages coming out of the of the CDC. And it really made us in the public health space question what their allegiance was. Was it to public health or was it to politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that is a scary question to have to ask. And, you know, Um, I don't see a lot. You tell me if I've missed it, right? I was looking at some of the proposed changes. So there's some streamlining uh, in terms of who reports to who that is supposed to help get information to the public faster. Uh, The CDC is going to ask for new powers, including being able to mandate that jurisdictions share data. There's going to be a new dedicated hub for interacting with state and federal agencies. They're going to redesign the website. They're asking for more flexible funding. Uh, I didn't know this, but apparently the CDC has not actually had a head of communications for the past four years. Now they, they have a new head of communications throughout the pandemic, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um. But I don't see a lot in here about prevention, which I think is such an important point. So, you know, wh- what do you think of some of the reforms that are being proposed and are they going to get to what you've said is is the most important thing that was missing, which is uh, being prepared ahead of time?
3: Right. I, I'm certainly cautiously optimistic. I think establishing this Office of Intergovernmental Affairs sort of to break down these silos within federal government agencies and also to better connect with state officials is a step in the right direction. When it comes to data right now, the only data points that we have metrics that we have really is percent positive and only 34 states right now are reporting out their percent positive. We really have no clue in terms of COVID-19 transmission, having a higher level office on health equity is clearly long overdue. It should have been something that was burst out of all the disparities that we saw during COVID back in 2020. But to your point, I am concerned about the plan um, in terms of even the length of time that they're now giving the agency to respond to outbreaks, a minimum of six months. Oh, waiting wow. Six months minimum to create a response to an outbreak out already out of the barn. Again, we're in a position, even these new restructuring guidelines again put us in a place of reactivity. We have to do better. We have to be able to anticipate what these needs are, even looking at what the WHO is pushing out, looking at what's happening where these pandemics and epidemics are starting, happening on the continent of Africa, what's happening in Europe, and not waiting until it arrives in our country to then figure out what we need to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the points that I have seen raised in uh, regarding monkeypox is that, you know— it the rest of the world was really content to let monkeypox uh, flare up and then die down in Africa as long as it didn't spread. And I think, what I mean, what? Obviously, uh, that's a, a moral and ethical violation. I think if you have the capability of, of helping to uh, control a disease somewhere that you know is is so painful, uh, you probably should. But also, as we travel more and as the climate changes, and diseases that were once you know that tropical what we once understood to be tropical areas spread, um, you're not going to be able to confine these diseases to what we're sort of happy to allow to be sacrifice zones, right? And I think that's to your point. You have to be—prevention is also knowing what's happening in other parts of the world because we are a connected planet.
3: Exactly. And if we learn nothing from COVID, it should be that. These diseases, especially these zoonotic diseases, do not respect country or state borders. In Asia, what happens in Africa is going to show up in the United States. And not only do we have to prepare for its arrival here, we also have to do our due diligence in making sure that we have a global approach to public health and prevention.
1: I want to talk a little bit about abortion also. Um, Today and tomorrow in Idaho, North Dakota, Tennessee and Texas, new laws come into force that further restrict abortion and provide for harsher penalties for violators. Uh, In Texas, abortion providers now risk a life sentence for performing an abortion at any time during pregnancy, unless the pregnant person's life is in danger. In Tennessee, abortion is banned, except if you're going to save the pregnant person's life. In Idaho, today, abortion was going to be banned across the board— with this weird provision that John and I talked about, that doctors can choose to provide abortions in cases where the mother's life is threatened or in cases of rape or incest, and then defend themselves at court, and maybe you'll be OK. It's—maybe we're going to call it a, an adequate defense. Um, and in North Dakota, abortion is illegal, except in the case of rape, incense, or the, incest, or the life of the mother. Um So, as of today, abortion is prohibited, starting at conception in a dozen states, and two more forbid the procedure after about six weeks of pregnancy, which is essentially uh, the same as a ban. But the Biden administration did win a small victory in federal court. Uh, when a judge decided to temporarily block Idaho's ban because she found that the state law was trumped by a federal law requiring hospitals to provide any stabilizing treatment necessary in a medical emergency. This would include abortion. So, again, this this isn't a final ruling or anything. This is an injunction. It blocks the law from going into effect, which I'm going to say is pretty thin— Federal protection right now, um, but maybe it offers the federal government some place to build on to to try to enact some protections for abortion?
3: Absolutely. It certainly does provide some, but very little protection as it's only based on what the judge's language covers. It's a small percentage of abortions that are performed in hospital settings. Healthcare providers, again, will have to prove that the abortion is truly in response to a medical emergency based on the language that was identified. When we think about where abortions take place, the question is, does this injunction cover hospitals? Or is it also going to cover clinics? Other health offices where abortions take place. Hospitals only make up about thirty three percent of the facilities that provide have provided historically abortions. The majority of them are conducted in clinics. So what does this prevent this protection provide? in terms of them still being able to operate in this same space. Healthcare providers and patients, they really need autonomy, not patriarchy, in making health decisions. And an abortion—deciding on getting an abortion truly really is a health decision between a patient, their provider, and whoever their maker may be. And it sh- politics should not be involved.
1: Uh, Dr. Hancock, I, I'm sorry if I'm springing this on you, but I know you are a, a, an obesity medicine specia- specialist and a pediatrician. And I, I wondered if you had seen this report— uh, out of the Johns Hopkins Children's Center that is noting what it calls an unprecedented increase in the number of new type 2 diabetes diagnoses among youth during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they are not saying whether they are, they can identify that the, the diabetes was caused by COVID-19 infection, infection or it's just associated with environmental changes and stresses from the pandemic. Uh, but let me see. It's— uh, New diagnoses of type two diabetes rose by seventy seven percent in the first year of the pandemic, which sounds like uh, a lot. I-, I wanted to get your reaction to this and what what you might guess that it says either about the the pandemic itself or about uh, you know the ripple effects of our particular response to it.
3: Sure, I want to make sure I just I level set real quick so that listeners know what the current rate of type two diabetes is among children. to seventy seven percent although high seems like incredibly high right now for every 1000 children in this age group 0.67 of them go on to develop type 2 diabetes and one in 1000 right now is the rate of diabetes that was prior to covid-19 now there is a 77% increase in that number mm-hmm. we're looking at a child and a third right one in a third children in 1,000 children now developing type 2 diabetes. But the number is still significantly high, especially given the fact that type 2 diabetes has usually been identified as an adult-set disease. The data also revealed that there is disproportionality in terms of who's experiencing it. Historically, more girls than boys were at higher risk for type 2 diabetes. What we also saw in the study was a significantly higher risk among Black children In terms of developing type two diabetes, but this coincides with data that we've talked about before, Michelle, in terms of the risk of or the rates of obesity during the pandemic among children. Obesity rates increased by almost ten percent, depending on which state you look at. So anywhere between five to ten percent increase in obesity rate, but we were already in a space with children dealing with obesity and overweight of around thirty three percent among children of color, upwards of forty percent. When you think about the combination of obesity rates increasing, sedentary behavior increasing, differences in how we eat. Right, a lot of times, so a lot of, the, of our children are dealing with stressors because of the pandemic. I can't imagine being little right now, hearing about polio, monkeypox, and right when I'm getting ready to back into school, um, there is a drive for us to likely eat high-calorie, uh, carbohydrate-rich food that put us at risk. Not to mention um, targeted marketing. Pepsi and Coca-Cola, all these companies, made record-breaking profits by targeting communities, especially during the pandemic. So it's the perfect storm for us to then see type 2 diabetes. And it's important for us to recognize as adults that the earlier children develop type 2 diabetes, higher the likelihood is that they are going to experience complications and at an earlier age. So it's important for parents to really pay attention. Take your child if they're dealing with overweight, or obesity, ask your healthcare provider, for a screening uh, hemoglobin A1C so that you know what your child's hemoglobin A1C is to determine what those next steps need to be. I mean,
1: I think, yeah, that is was my first thought, of course, is is obesity. And I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but American adults, uh, half of American adults gained uh, quite a lot of weight during the pandemic. I'm seeing here uh, a report from last summer that found the average gain was 29 pounds. But in some age cohorts,
0: You're it, looking was at it way
1: bigger, like 40 pounds or something, which is, you know, a lot of weight to put on over a a year or two. And I think, you know, uh, Dr. Hancock, some of the discrepancies in this data might also say something about our communities, right? Who has access to outdoor recreation, right? Who has access to green spaces? I mean, I know a lot in terms of adults, Like people make their own personal choices. People are going to pick up new habits or not. But, you know, it kind of shows that public health is not limited just to v- visits to a clinic and antibiotics and whatever it does it is affected by what your neighborhood is like right it is affected by where you can do exercise or not do exercise it's ev- affected by the the size of your home and the space that you have
3: in your home and all of all of these the presence things.
0: of food deserts
3: yeah absolutely what you guys are speaking to are what we classically call the social determinants of health, health is where you are born grow live learn play pray and work and age. It is all of the components that you just talked about. It isn't simply what some of my colleagues call a hand to mouth disease. It isn't that people are just making choices to eat unhealthy foods? We have to pay attention to what environment do individuals make these choices. If and you live in South DC, where there's one um, grocery store for every nine thousand residents. But if you live in World 3 where there's one grocery store for one in 800 residents, it's going to make a difference in terms of food availability and in terms of safe space or physical activity. And the resources that are made available, we have to collectively pay attention to equity in all things in order for us to be able to address these disparities that we see in this data.
1: Dr. Hancock, always a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find more of the work that you do?
3: My website is at. DrYola.com, and you can find me on social media at AskDrYola, A-S-K-D-R-Y-O-L-A.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are going to take a break in just a minute and come back to talk about uh, the resurgence of fighting, the sort of crumbling of a truce in northern Ethiopia, and also uh, the hijacking of a bunch of fuel tankers. Uh, by the TPLF, yes. which as far as I can see is, you know, it's getting some attention in African news sources and in uh, Eastern news sources, but not a lot over here in the West. Uh, one of the other headlines that caught my eye this morning was that um, Vanessa Bryant won right. her lawsuit over uh, photos of the helicopter crash that killed yes. her husband, Kobe Bryant, her daughter, and I think six other people. Uh, $16 million. Each. Yeah, it was sixteen million and fifteen million to right, the other families, right. and then there had been another uh, couple million dollar settlement yeah. a few months ago by other families. But I, I, mean, I hope really, this
0: teaches a lesson to these these sheriff's deputies who thought it was cool to take pictures and then circulate them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money, but yeah, the story of the guy, the deputy, is trying to show uh, pictures of the crash site to a bartender, yeah, which is I think bartender. how this all broke open. Look where how he cool said, "I, don't I want am. to see this," and right. he called up Yeah, I mean. Absolutely horrifying, so I'm uh you know, I'm not mad.
0: yeah, I, I agree. I agree. That poor family has really suffered, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, the other news that I think we are going to try to get into a little bit more tomorrow is this attack on a security delegation of the Colombian president in yes. the Caratumbo region, which is on the border with Venezuela. The president wasn't there. He's going there tomorrow. Um, But he—he's uh, an advanced security team that was checking out the route was apparently fired on. The former president uh, Ivan Duque was a, had his helicopter fired upon, and so in the same region. In the same region. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, a year ago, uh, you know, at least according to to these reports. So uh, I know Petro is still planning to go there. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We're gonna take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll talk to you again in a minute. I'm here with John Kiriaku. and uh, it was a pretty stunning, I thought, stunning development in the war in Ethiopia yesterday. Uh, the World Food Program announced that Tigrayan authorities had stolen 12 trucks with more than half a million liters of fuel. I think it's 570,000 liters of fuel that were intended to fuel World Food Program operations in Tigray right? And the U.N. World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley took to Twitter to report the news in a post that vibrates with anger. Uh, He wrote, millions will starve if we do not have fuel to deliver food. This is outrageous and disgraceful. That's in all caps. We demand return of this fuel now. Again, in all caps. I mean, he's like, this is—you can feel the upset coming off this tweet. Uh, it hasn't got very much attention, and so I, I wanted to talk about what, what is happening, what, what kind of pattern this represents, why we're not hearing more about it, and what exactly is happening in the conflict in Ethiopia. Joining us to get into all of these questions is Nabiu Asfa. He's co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nabiou, thank you for being with us.
4: And John, thanks for having me.
1: I I have some very—you know, some sort of broader-picture questions for you. Uh, But first, I just want to ask you about the immediate impact of this theft, right? What is this going to mean for the people of northern Ethiopia?
4: Yeah, so, you know, gas uh, is is scarce in this region. There's uh, over 5 million people in Tigray that are living under the occupation of these rebel forces. The Tigray People's Liberation Front— In a sense, they've been cut off from the rest of Ethiopia and the rest of the world. So their livelihood and um, survival solely depends on humanitarian aid, and humanitarian aid requires fuel to transport uh, the aid, as well as a safe uh, passage. Uh, The rebels have, in a sense, cut this off now, uh, stolen, you know, all the, the fuel. And and basically, uh, there's also reports of some humanitarian aid agencies that have been abducted or arrested by the rebel forces, which is also not being um, covered. So, this is going to impact millions of people in Tigray, not just in Tigray, but in the neighboring regions of Amhara and Afar, where there are millions of uh, people internally displaced by these rebel forces, will also be impacted uh, by this uh, lack of fuel.
1: And how unusual is this? for the TPLF, right? Is this the first time that they have helped themselves to aid uh, that's meant to go elsewhere?
4: Um, No. You know, uh, for those of us who follow Ethiopian and Horn of Africa politics, uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front has a history and a track record of stealing humanitarian aid and diverting it for war. This goes all the way back to the 1980s famine in Ethiopia, where tens of millions of dollars of aid was sent to the Tigray and northern Ethiopia region. That now we know was stolen by the TPLF forces and was used for war. The TPLF at the time in the 80s was fighting a government at the time to to get into power. And declassified documents from American and British intelligence now tells tell us that the TPLF same forces were stealing aid is meant to uh, famine victims. And, and the same thing is happening now. Uh, even just uh, last summer, over 1,000 U.N. trucks were abducted by the TPLF forces, and they were using these trucks to transport rebel soldiers uh, to invade two neighboring regions, the Amhara region and Afar region of Ethiopia. And um, millions of millions of food aid has been stolen by these rebel forces and used uh, to feed their, their forces. Um, and, and, and simultaneously, they've blamed the Ethiopian government for blocking aid, which is uh, really unfortunate that the Western media has gone along with that story. The reality is that it is the rebel forces that, that are basically stealing the aid and, and fuel uh, and using it for war.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to mention that, because the Ethiopian government has been accused of blocking aid. Uh, They've been accused of facilitating uh, famine and genocide in in Tigray. They've been accused of, uh, you know, using aid as blackmail. Uh, Can you talk to us about what you think uh, some of those reports are missing?
4: Yeah, well, it's the mainstream Western media, unfortunately, rarely gets Africa right. You know, they superficially determine who is the villain and who is the victim. Sure. They would push that narrative to the end of the earth. And in this scenario in Ethiopia, they've decided that the TPLF are the heroes. And and, and this is uh, tied to the Biden administration's support to the TPLF rebels um, or the 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 you know perception of support to the TPLF rebels and the western media has basically cheered on these rebels um despite overwhelming evidence that they are the belligerent terrorizing the entire horn of africa region Western media continues to either under-report or ignore TPLF atrocities, and when they do report it, they either shift blame to the Ethiopian government, to the Eritrean government, or they do the both them where they say both sides are guilty of X, Y, Z. So there's a lot of political propaganda happening that the media is just kind of propagating.
0: You know, you see that a lot in, in foreign policy. We, we could say the same thing about Libya, where— the State Department just picked a side. It looks now in retrospect like it was the wrong side, and they just kept doubling down. They they won't admit to making a making a mistake in these civil conflicts, and they just keep doubling down.
1: And, you know, uh, yeah, it, this I was just looking, right? I looked this morning, and the only sources I could find picking up on this news were mostly African. Mm-hmm. African news sources, Middle Eastern, Asian news sources. Now, as of a couple hours ago, we have the VOA— uh, talking about the allegations made by uh, by David Beasley. Uh, so, you know, w- what we got from the U.S. Secretary of State, who hasn't said anything so far, is a, a statement that they're concerned that renewed fighting puts people at risk and calls for the government and the TPLF to uh, start working toward peace, right? Nothing, nothing about this. I feel like if it was the Ethiopian government that was accused of doing this, we would hear quite a lot more about it. Um, I wanted to ask you also to just talk to us about you know what what Anthony Blinken is referring to, which is the state of this uh, this truce now, or I suppose rather the state of the conflict as it seems to have uh, re erupted.
4: Yeah, basically the secretary is giving a non statement statement. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Um, what, what is happening in Ethiopia that the, the secretary uh, chose not to mention is that the Ethiopian government had declared a humanitarian truce back in March, so there has not been a war in, in the northern region since March. Um, In a sense, right now, uh, these rebels, the TPLF, uh, have broken that humanitarian truce, have stolen humanitarian aid and fuel, and just yesterday have restarted the war. And the war is not in Tigray. They've passed the border of Tigray and invaded the neighboring region of Amhara. The same thing they did back in June. So the the the, the Tigran forces, in a sense, have stolen all this humanitarian aid and have launched an offensive against the state of Ethiopia. So instead of condemning these rebels, the the the, the secretary is basically saying both sides need to calm down.
1: Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's happening, and that is what has been happening over the past year and a half. That has been a great disappointment um, to the uh, Ethiopian community, uh, both in the U.S. and, and back home. It has been a big disappointment that this administration continues to, um, you know, uh, to continues to refuse to condemn this DPLF, and, and in a sense, uh, you know, looks the other way as they commit atrocities and human rights violations. This war would have ended a long time ago if it wasn't for the State Department. Sanctioning Ethiopia, sanctioning Eritrea, sanctioning Somalia, intervening in a way that has been ben- beneficial to the rebels. Which, which by the way, these rebels were in power in Ethiopia. They used to rule Ethiopia for seven years, from 1991 until 2018. For which time, during which time, they really served as the policeman for the U.S. and the northeastern africa region so the administration appears to have a soft side for them at least that's the perception in our community
1: can you talk a little bit more about these sanctions and the impact that they've had
4: yeah it's 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 um, you know this is a developing area um, and there's a drought uh, currently affecting the area. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you know, some of the, the policies coming from from uh, the current administration and even Congress has been very hostile to the Horn of Africa, including Ethiopia and Eritrea, where, uh, for example, sanctions have been passed um, against the, the both states. Uh, uh, there's a, a thing called AGOA, the African Growth Opportunity Act, that used to allow Ethiopia to send in uh, their products to the U.S. tariff-free. That has been—Ethiopia uh, has been removed from that, and basically arms embargo and restriction and, and aid and security assistance and a number of things that have really parted the economy. The Agoa restriction sanction alone is impacting a million people that absolutely have nothing to do with the war. Now, the, the reason given behind the sanction is to to bring peace in the region, right? But it is not bringing peace. It is starving people.
1: Yeah, I keep seeing them called smart sanctions, right? Oh, but boy. I don't know that our sanctions really ever do anything except hurt.
0: They just hurt part the
1: public. Sometimes they hurt the public not in the country they're targeting, as we are seeing with Europe. Um, but yeah, I mean, to put this in in a larger perspective, right? The World Food Program, which just was robbed of its fuel, has been warning about the potential for widespread famine in the Horn of Africa for a long time now. Uh, most recently, it was talking about. Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia, which are in the midst of a drought, as you mentioned, it's killed livestock, it's ruined crops. The WFP a few days ago said 22 million people are at risk of starvation. And so I wondered if you could talk to us about what what is being done, what's able to be done uh, to help prevent a famine in the Horn of Africa and uh, and what you think could be done uh, and should be done. You know, what's what's being blocked that could have an impact?
4: Yeah. So, you know, this, this region uh, that is facing this—the this threat of famine, there's a number of things contributing into it, obviously, the war, and um, and there's the climate change uh, that's playing into it. Um, the COVID outbreak has hit the area bad that has affected the economy, um, and there's there's been a locust outbreak that has, you know, destroyed some of the, the harvest. But the main, really, issue here is the sanctions that have disabled their economy and put them on a chokehold, an economic chokehold, basically taking away their ability to withstand droughts and this downside. This, this drought happen, you know, it's a cycle, right? They happen routinely. I mean, not, you know, over a, a, a few years, but normally the states are able to withstand them. They were able to, you know, put aside some surplus food to take care of it. In addition to that, there is humanitarian aid that comes in from the world community. To help um, the the people there, um, while that is happening now, I think what we could do um, to 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 help the people of the Horn of Africa is one, stop intervening in, in their politics and make situations worse, um, and let them, you know, for example, handle uh, their situation so they can work things out, and then remove the sanctions that are have really uh, uh, are hurting. These are poor countries; these are developing countries. What we should be doing is encouraging development, enabling development, and increasing trade and partnership with the state. And that would uplift millions out of poverty and would prevent situations like this.
1: Early on in the conflict, there was fear that this could spill over into a larger war, uh, maybe pulling in Eritrea, maybe pulling in Somalia. Uh, You know, during the period of the truce, I have not seen a lot of headlines about that. But with the truce, uh, perhaps at an end, I I wonder if people should still be concerned that this will not remain an Ethiopian conflict, but will turn into a regional one.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, you know, last year uh, when the TPLF launched the attack, they attacked both Ethiopia and Eritrea or a launch of missiles into Eritrea will they do the same thing now you know that's a possibility but what what else is happening is in, in, in Somalia where there recently there was a regime change that was um a happening now there's a a president that is friendly uh with the west that has recently allowed um US troops to be deployed into Somalia and this was supposed to bring peace but um you know, coincidentally, as the U.S. troops have entered Somalia, Al Shabaab has reemerged. So there was just a, a terrible terrorist attack in Hayat Hotel in Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, that killed uh, many people. And then the Al Shabaab has also. Uh, intruded into Ethiopia and and are uh, fighting with the Ethiopian government. So uh, this potentially could destabilize the whole region. It could get worse. And coincidentally, as al-Shabaab is waging this war on Somalia and Ethiopia, the TPLF is now waging the war on Ethiopia, potentially in Eritrea, because they're threatening them. So this is um, the entire horn. Um, You know, it's a large area. Ethiopia alone has 120 million people. That's the 12th largest country in the world. The Horn of Africa combined is as big as Western Europe together. Um, So, you know, this is a big risk uh, of security, not just for the region. This is a a very strategic region with the Red Sea. Across the Red Sea, you have Yemen. That's in conflict, you got Saudi Arabia that whole area um could go you know up in flames if, if if this is not controlled and the best thing we could do um here is is really to stop intervening and fueling this this uh quote unquote liberation fronts and rebels and Um, you know, oppositions and let the people, the African Union, help and handle the situation like they were trying to do with the recent peace talks.
1: That's—yeah, that was going to be my next question, right? Who who can help create uh, the conditions under which you could maybe find a negotiated solution here? I I hear you that you say— the U.S. Western countries should lift the sanctions that they've imposed on Ethiopia, which would uh, help them militarily, help the Ethiopian government. Um, but is it is it the African Union who you think should, should be able to facilitate peace talks? Should anybody else uh, be involved in this
4: process? It should be the African Union's African— uh solutions for African problems, right? Only the African Union and the Africans know how to solve their own problem. The intrusion from from Europe, EU, and the U.S. have, uh, pro, you know, caused more issues than than it has helped. Um, over the past few months, there has been an attempt on peace talks. The Ethiopian government have put together um, a, a, a committee, an authorized committee, um, and, and willing to talk with the rebels anytime, anywhere. And this was being negotiated uh, by the African Union. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the TPLF, this rebel forces insisted that the United States be part of the negotiation. Okay. And then, you know, throughout this process, it fell apart yesterday, and they launched the war. So I, I think that we should um, encourage the African Union and able— Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, and all Africans to solve their own problems, because they're capable.
1: Insisting that the United States be part of negotiations is uh, pretty—I don't know, pretty transparent, right? I mean, the U.S. was a big supporter of the—you know, you've mentioned already that the TPLF was in control of uh, Ethiopia uh, until 2018, or the people, the authorities who are behind the the TPLF. Um, It just definitely shows you, it seems like, uh, whose side Washington is on.
4: Yeah, that's definitely the appearance, and, uh, you know, the evidence yeah. supports that. Yeah. Uh,
1: you've said that the West uh, gets Africa wrong, or that the United States gets Africa wrong. And I agree with you, and I wanted to ask why you think that is. And I will say, I don't think that—I uh, don't think that it's necessarily only Africa that the United States gets wrong. I mean, I think we get the Middle East wrong pretty frequently. Uh, I think we get— East Asia wrong pretty frequently. But certainly, uh, the United States either misunderstands Africa or is constantly trying to speak out of both sides of their mouths, right, when we talk about what our stated goals are uh, versus the outcomes that keep happening. no matter. Oh, it just seems like we keep taking more resources and countries keep getting poorer. So I wanted to ask why, why you think the West— gets Africa wrong, if that is the problem, and uh, what could be done about it?
4: Yeah, I mean, you're right. The the West gets the global South wrong, you know, altogether. But I would say especially Africa. (laughs) And, you know, this is a pattern throughout history— where Africans are really seen as savages and developed. And even though over 50% of the world's resources come from Africa, um, the only uh, way Africa is seen by the West is as a place where you can go and grab stuff, right? Yeah. Um, Instead of allowing the people to self-determine, that's why we're always intervening. um, And somehow we're always in the middle of all this conflict. Um, and, and, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, some institutional racism in this as well. Um, I'll give you one example. For example, in the recent Ukraine-Russia war, um, Africa is the only place that is being directly threatened by sanctions for, for, uh, even taking a neutral position, Mm uh, on, on Russia, there's a legislation in Congress called HR 7311 um, that is basically saying that African countries that cooperate with Russia in the, Ukraine, in the European Civil War would be punished by the US. Um, there's no such rule for Latin American countries, mm-hmm. Eastern countries, any other nation, Eastern European countries that have allegedly uh, sided with Russia, but only in Africa. Now, the position most African countries have taken is not even a position to support one from the other. It's like none of our business. We're going to stay out of it. You know? But, no, you can't buy oil from Russia. If you do, that's a support. And in the United Nations, if you don't vote with NATO, you're at a magazine as against and could potentially be sanctioned. This kind of legislation and this kind of— uh, you know, things um, are <laughs> almost exclusively done to Africans. No, nobody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. And and this is just the the disrespect um, the West has to Africa and Africans is is what it shows in in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good point. There are plenty of other countries that are sort of overtly friendly with Russia that remain overtly friendly with Russia that we are not uh, considering. Sort of
0: Some of them are members of NATO. Yeah, exactly. And we are
1: not considering legislating punishment for them. I think that is a great observation. Uh, That was Nabiya Asfa. He's co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work?
4: Yeah, you can find more of our work on Twitter at at EA underscore Dev Council. EA underscore Dev Council on Twitter, Ethiopian American Development Council.
1: Nabiya, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. John to tell you about a story in the new yorker that i just saw yeah i apologize it's not a fun one Uh-oh. i'm just saving some for later uh it's a story about i mean it's a topic that has sort of been on people's minds uh the pandemic raised a, a lot of issues here with the uh, nursing homes yes and the conditions in nursing oh, homes yes and what was going on there uh of course we increasingly have uh private equity involved in health care because it's such a great and profitable industry. And so The New Yorker has done this deep dive into uh, when private equity takes over a nursing home and uh, wanted to find out what happens. And it starts off with, you know, talking about this very longstanding, very beautiful nursing home that used to provide really excellent care with really caring staff, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It notes that since the turn of the century, Private equity investment in nursing homes has grown from five billion to one hundred billion oh dollars. So that's in twenty-two years. Oh my god! And uh, the the idea behind these investments is to increase inf- efficiency in these nursing homes, right? Uh, so you're centralizing management and administrative services, and primarily you're cutting staff, right? Because labor... that's what you need.
0: You need fewer people to help you. Yeah, uh, in the nursing home. But this yeah. is
1: what happens, right? You go, oh well, you can do you can do two other people's jobs. You can right. do two other people's jobs. Right. So what they found, uh, they looked through more than a hundred private equity deals that took place between 2004 and 2015, according to the New Yorker, and uh, linked each deal to resident outcomes in different categories like mobility, uh, self-reported pain, et cetera. What the data revealed was when private equity firms bought nursing homes deaths among residents increased by an average of 10%. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, a, this is directly attributed to staffing, right? When the firms buy a nursing home, they cut staff. Sure. But what they also found was nurse availability is the most important indicator of quality of care, right? And so the story says, you know, at homes with fewer nurses, residents get fewer baths. They fall more because there aren't as many people to help them. Uh, They get dehydrated more often. They're malnourished more often. They lose weight. They have more pain. They get pressure ulcers because they aren't moved on all of these things, which when you are an old person can lead pretty dramatically uh, downhill. And so, again, it's a it's a heartbreaking story, right? It's really sad. And it does show sort of what we were talking about uh, at the at the beginning of the show that you, you if you. By your philosophy, think that everything can be a source of profit. Every, everything is up for grabs. You know, everyone should be able to profit from any industry. Where do you, how can you draw a line, right? How can you draw a line and say, no, no, we're not going to have private equity firms uh, in nursing homes. No, no, no. Um, sorry. In, in this category alone, uh, efficiency shouldn't be your your primary goal. It's awful. It's this awful to contemplate. Awful. It's really sad. You know, not
0: to be not to be morose, but I I always thought if I get to the point where I have to go to a to a nursing home, I'm going to go to Whole Foods. I'm going to buy two crab cakes and a pound of shrimp. I'm oh gonna- no. That's how you're going to go out. <laughs> and that's it. Ah. Uh, I'm going to feast. I'm going to lay down in bed and that's going to be the end of it. Wow,
1: John. That's not how I would do it, but uh that's <laughs> <laughs> but okay. <laughs> um, I do have a better story Good. if you want to do that before we take a quick break. Um, the NLRB is coming for Starbucks. I saw this. Did you see In this? Fact, I was
0: going to mention it to uh-huh. you and I forgot. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you brought it up. Yep. You know, I I want to like Starbucks. I want them to be a progressive. You know. New economy success story. Wasn't there? But they're just wrong about labor. Wasn't there
1: a strange period of time where people were thinking, Howard Schultz? Isn't it Howard Schultz? Howard is a, Schultz. Yeah, was going to run, run for president. Yeah. Because yeah, okay. that's what we needed. Yeah. Yeah. A union
0: no. breaking billionaire.
1: So the NLRB has said that Starbucks illegally withheld pay and benefits from workers at hundreds of unionizing stores. And it is going to try to force Starbucks to pay 100% of the denied benefits to require. Howard Schultz himself to record a video admitting that what Starbucks did was illegal Good. Uh, to make managers and supervisors attend labor law and workers' rights training to apologize to all Starbucks employees for their hardship, uh, etc. So, you know, it does look like uh, th- there's been some, some action by the NLRB here. A little surprising that uh, the Democrats haven't picked it up more. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they're not a— they're not a labor party. They're anymore. not. They're yeah. not
0: a labor party. Yeah. Like today, in the, the New York Times had this article, this self flagellating article about why is it that labor people are leaving the Democratic Party? Well, I'll give you one guess. Yeah. The Democratic Party's not pro labor. It's, yeah. That's it. And again, it's as easy as that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Should we take a quick <sighs> break here and yeah, come back and talk sure. about what's going on in uh, Iran and Syria? Another- well, you know
0: what? Before we take our break, mm-hmm. uh, the Intrepid Ray has forwarded. Uh, a New York Times breaking news thing to us that uh, that a pair of people, I forget their names now. I, I knew this a week ago in Florida have decided to plead guilty in the theft of Joe Biden's daughter's diary.
1: Amy when, Harris and Robert Curland. Thank you. That's who they are. Yeah. Uh,
0: which they then sold to or gave to Project Veritas. Mm hmm.
1: Well, it says they sold them. And what is, you know, Project Veritas has been defending itself and is reporting on the the diary by saying we didn't we didn't steal it. Right. But we're reporting on it. We got it. We're a
0: journalistic outlet.
1: Yeah. And if it does seem like, you know, what what the Times is reporting, which is, of course, pretty hostile to Project Veritas, as we are most of the time, too. Right. Um, but The Times is say, saying uh, that Harrison Kurlander said they took part in a conspiracy to transport stolen materials from Florida to New York, where Project Veritas is headquarters. So if they were part of the conspiracy uh, to that's steal a crime. this, I feel like that might be different yeah, than reporting different. on something that someone gives to you exactly that you didn't right. ask them to uh, break the law to get. So we'll have to see uh, how Project Veritas responds to this and defends themselves, and what the more, the details were of uh, what they actually have confessed to right. or pleaded guilty to.
0: And well, you, you gotta you gotta wonder about Joe Biden's kids. I mean, it, it, was it that he didn't pay any attention to them when they were growing up, or there, there's some what, there's some psychological was there study there
1: interesting in the diary? I don't yeah, that remember. she was
0: a crackhead just like Hunter.
1: No, oh, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe
0: maybe Delaware is just boring. Maybe. That could be it. <laughs> I grew up with the Amish. It's no wonder half my friends are crackheads.
1: Let's take a break. I want to look through this article and see what it actually says, and then we got to come back and, and talk a little bit about Iran. Excellent. You're listening to Political Misfits. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back.
0: It's on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witty. The Defense Department announced overnight that it had launched airstrikes on two separate bases in Syria, killing at least two fighters linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. The bombing was in retaliation for a failed Iranian rocket attack on a U.S. base in Syria, which in turn was in retaliation for a rocket attack on a U.S. base in Syria on August 15th. These tit for tat operations come in the midst of what appears to be real progress between Iran and the United States on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Is it enough to kill the process? We're joined by political analyst Mohammed Mirandi. Mohammed is a professor of English literature and orientalism at the University of Tehran. Welcome back, Mohammed. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So glad to have you. Let's let's start with Syria, if we could. Uh, this is is so Petty and it's almost hard to keep straight. The U.S. says that IRGC forces are attacking American forces in northeastern Syria. Iranian troops have been invited into Syria by the Syrian government. U.S. troops have not been invited uh, into Syria. What is the nature of the fight then between Iranians and Americans in Syria?
5: Well, um, first of all, I think the Americans are exaggerating the attack, uh, because I think the this attack has more to do with making Biden look strong as he approaches a nuclear deal with Iran, just as we've been hearing these uh, statements over the past few days in the Western media, the American media in particular, that Iran has given these concessions all of a sudden, which are not true. Uh, one of them I think I've even discussed on your show before, that the Iranians never uh, made the removal of the guards from the foreign, U.S. foreign terrorist organization a precondition, and I've been saying this for months. But suddenly now we hear Western media saying, "Yes, the Iranians have backed down from this uh, from this <laughs> position." Right. So I, I think it has more to do with preparing the grounds for an agreement. Although I can't swear or, or I can't be sure about that, but uh, I can't swear to it. But that's my understanding. But In any case, in Syria, the forces that are on the ground are are either Syrian forces or forces that are uh, those that um, or uh, Syrian forces and forces that are there with the consent of the Syrian government, and therefore their presence is legitimate. Or those forces are illegal, meaning they're foreign countries that do not have the Syrian approval. The approval of the internationally recognized government, and that would mean the United States, its allies and of course Turkey right so if if the United States has attacked anyone in Syria, it is illegal because their occupation is illegal they've occupied one third of the country they are protecting uh, groups who are stealing Syrian oil and selling them abroad with the help of American uh, Armed forces, and so the Americans are strangling the Syrian people and stealing their assets through their proxies in Syria. So, uh, any airstrike by the Americans against against anyone, whether there are real casualties or not, uh, that's illegal.
0: I wanted to ask you too. When the Pentagon complains about Iran-backed fighters or fighters allied with Iran. Who exactly are they talking about? Are these Iranian nationals? Are they members of the IRGC? Are they from Hezbollah? Or are they just Syrians who happen to be allied with Iran?
5: Well, the whole of the Syrian government is allied with Iran because they've been fighting together against ISIS and al-Qaeda, or al-Qaeda as they say in the United States, for (laughs) years now. So there are... Uh, there are Iraqi forces, uh, there are Iranian forces, uh, there are uh, Afghan uh, uh, forces from Afghanistan, there are Syrian forces more than anyone else, there are Lebanese. Uh, all of them are a part of a broad coalition to fight ISIS and al-Qaeda. And it, it was they who defeated ISIS and al-Qaeda. The United States and its NATO allies and its clients in the Persian Gulf region, they created ISIS and, Al- and Al-Qaeda. And uh, only when the United States saw that, he, that the Syrians and their allies were defeating ISIS did they suddenly start to uh, move into Syria and to fight, basically, to gain territory inside Syria. So when ISIS was on, was on the verge of being defeated, the Americans used uh, militias uh, basically Kurdish militias to take over large swathes of land in Syria so that it could uh, have a say in the future of the country. So the United States is illegal, illegally occupying Syria. It initially fought—it initially helped ISIS through Turkey and with funds from uh, the Persian Gulf and also through the help of Western intelligence agencies. Uh, but later on, when the fight was lost and the Syrian government was regaining power, Did they tried to take territory that was being lost by ISIS, and they wanted to protect that—keep that territory away from—they uh, wanted to prevent the Syrian government from, from regaining that territory.
0: Can you give us an update, Mohammed, on the JCPOA negotiations? We honestly don't get much news other than these very short pieces saying that things seem to be going well. Um should we expect an announcement soon? Uh, and if there is an agreement, what do you think that agreement will look like?
5: I think we're pretty close and that um, Iran has achieved uh, a lot of gains on all the key issues, whether it's uh, sanctions, guarantees, uh, assurances, um, and uh, and resolving the problems with the uh, IAA. And, uh, and the verification process for both sides. Uh, but uh, the issue—so uh, I, I, I think we're pretty close. I can't say for sure that there will be a deal, but I think we're pretty close. But any implementation of the deal will need the file uh, that's uh, like in the IAA to be closed. And Iran doesn't have a problem with uh, technical ex- with technical experts from right. both sides discussing their ambiguity, the ambiguities or questions that may exist to solve it. But ultimately, in order for the deal to move forward, or any deal to move forward, the IAEA issue that the false accusations, for Iran considers to be false accusations against it, that case has to be closed because the Iranians are saying if it isn't closed, then uh, that will be. The Achilles heel for the deal.
0: Yes. Once there is a deal, and I'm I'm being purposely optimistic here, uh, do you think we right. should expect to see Iranian energy exports to Europe, Iranian trade with the uh, United States? Well, what do you think that would look like?
5: Uh, I think that Europe would be very keen on Iranian e- energy exports, whether oil or gas, and Iran does have the ability to export some gas. At this stage, not that much, but uh, but some gas, but uh, much more oil. So that is that is uh, that that would be possible with regards to the United States. I'm not that optimistic. I think that uh, the political establishment in the United States has a very uh, irrational hatred towards Iran. Uh, and I, uh, and you know, ordinary Americans like to think, and I think it's based upon what they've been hearing for decades, that it's the Iranians who are inter- are irrational. Sure, but the Iranians. But when we look at history, it's the Iranians who've tried to solve the problem with the United States on numerous occasions, and they were subsequently slapped in the face. One was when, after the Iran Iraq War, and the U S. supported Saddam. After the war, Iran gave Conoco an oil company in the U.S. Um, an oil, a major oil field in the Persian Gulf. The U.S. slapped sanctions on Iran as it was uh, subsequently, as soon as the deal was about to be signed. Then, of course, there's the famous case of uh, after nine eleven, when Iran helped the United States to defeat Al Qaeda and I- and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Iran was subsequently called. Access of evil, right? So the U.S. got Iranian support and and uh, assistance, and then turned around and called Iran an access of evil. Then we saw the 2015 nuclear deal, and subsequently Obama violated the deal, and Trump tore up the deal. So, and there are other cases as well. There's the issue of American hostages in Lebanon, where the Americans approached Iran, promised better relations if Iran could get them freed. Back then, there was no Hezbollah. There were these different small militias that were that held these people. The Iranians spent political capital and probably money to get the Americans freed and the Americans' government in, in response to the exact opposite of what they promised. So um, experience and history shows that the United States, at least till now, uh, the U.S. government is not mature enough to change its attitude towards Iran. So I'm not optimistic about the future. But the changes in the world that we live in are so extraordinary right now, and the challenges that exist in the world right now are so extraordinary and unprecedented that um, I can't speak much about—I can't be sure about the future.
0: Sure. A few months ago, when we had you on the show, we discussed a news report that the U.S. was considering removing the IRGC from the list of state-sponsored terrorist groups. Um, this is, of course, a political list. You know, Cuba was on it until just a few years ago, and groups that many Americans have never even heard of. Uh, the news reports said that the U.S. had gone to the Israeli government for their comments, and then we never heard anything else. Of course, the the conclusion that we have to draw is the Israelis uh, nixed the idea. Uh, this would have been, in my view, a big move in the right direction for U.S.-Iranian relations. Have you heard of any developments at all in this area? Well, with
5: regards to the uh, IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, being removed from the U.S. Uh, foreign terrorist organization list, uh, as I said earlier, that that was never preconditioned for Iran. Right. And the main reason is because the guards are sanctioned at multiple, with multiple, uh, in in multiple ways. So even if they're removed from the The list; it won't impact. uh, It won't have a a a, a major impact on on the the functioning of the guards. So it would have been a smart move by the United States because it would have been an olive branch, but uh, wouldn't have had a major impact on uh, Iranian lives or economy or anything like that. But what? uh basically, what happens as a result is that CENTCOM remains on the u s on the Iranian uh, foreign terrorist organization list, the u s. armed forces right. in the region and, right. and that is that is a problem for the United States because any incident in the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean uh, would could lead to swift escalation because the Iranians will not tear will not communicate with a foreign terrorist organization, and the Americans will not communicate with what they consider to be a foreign terrorist organization. So escalation could be swift, and it could get out of control.
0: In June, President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia to meet with the leaders of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, as well as the leaders of Iraq, Egypt, and Jordan. And he proposed a regional defense organization akin to NATO that would be focused against Iran. Nobody seemed to be terribly interested, other than the Israelis, of course. And now we see reports that Iran is reestablishing diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates. Tell us about the status of those relations and relations with other GCC countries. How are things going?
5: Well, Iran always had relations with the United Arab Emirates, but we didn't have an ambassador. but now uh, the ambassadors have are, are, have been exchanged, so we do have uh, the UAE for, as an ambassador here, and so does Iran have an ambassador there. So the relations have been upgraded. The same is true with Kuwait. Um, the Saudis have been seeking to reestablish formal ties with Iran, as you pointed out, and that is moving forward uh, as we speak. So... And, 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 and I think an important thing to keep in mind is that the countries of the region, Iran aside Iran's a different case altogether they see the United States as a declining power. They, it's visible to everyone. So even the most, uh, the most the countries that are most bound to the United States feel that the United States does not have control. If you recall and I'm sure you do, just three or four years ago, Mohammed bin Salman was in the Oval Office sitting beside Trump, and Trump was showing reporters all the different weapon systems that the, U- the U.S. was selling to the Saudis.
0: I do remember and, that.
5: And he said in speeches that, you know, Saudi Arabia was they were basically milking Saudi Arabia. Well, because of... The decline of the United States, the relative decline. Now, uh, President Biden, and I don't think it's because it's just Biden and not Trump. I think it's this is a, a trend, a broader trend that goes beyond presidents. Because of the decline of the United States and self inflicted decline, perpetual war- warfare, quantitative easing, bad economic policies, uh, uh, the, the nature of, of uh, liberal capitalism, uh, the United States is in a much weaker position. So now, when Biden travels to Saudi Arabia, the Saudis basically give him nothing. So I think that's something that the United States has to keep in mind when it's constantly antagonizing Iran, that the U.S. is losing its capabilities in the region. It's not taken seriously or at least as seriously as it was before, and therefore these countries are going to try to bend yeah, or, or mend, mend relations with Iran.
0: Right. Right. So
5: the smart thing would be to, to for the United States to rethink its relationship with Iran, but again, because of the, the historically irrational view taken by the political establishment in the U.S. regarding Iran, uh,
0: that's very difficult. Very imagine. difficult and. Thank you for joining us, Mohamed Mirandi. Mohammed is a political analyst and professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one last short break and come back. Stay tuned.
1: without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Whitty. I'm here with John Kiriaku. Boy, this uh, this stolen diary thing is kind of interesting. As I say, uh, so th- the New York Times leads with this uh, paragraph—not uh, leads, it's the second—that uh, Amy Harris and Robert Curlander admitted they took part in a conspiracy to transport stolen materials from Florida to New York— where Project Veritas is headquartered, which makes it seem like Project Veritas itself is part of the conspiracy. But they don't seem to have been. What is detailed here is that these two people have pleaded guilty to taking stolen goods across state lines to sell them. So uh, the woman of this pair moved into a house. She found that Ashley Biden— Uh, That's her name, right? Ashley. She had left her diary and some other belongings there. Uh, She wanted to make a quick buck. So she took it. She enlisted the help of this other fellow. They first took it. This is according to uh, an Axios report. And according, Axios is, uh, yeah, and they're building office statements by prosecutors. They first took it to the Trump campaign. Wow. Uh, they took it to uh, a big time sort of Trump uh, donor um, person wow. looking here. And uh, apparently it's according to Axios. They took it to the Trump campaign and the Trump campaign said, we can't use it. Uh, take it to the FBI, Uh huh. which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And so then they took it to Project Veritas. Project Veritas bought it, uh, tried to authenticate it. And then I think they actually never even published it. No. Another group got it no, and they, they didn't published parts uh, of it. I see. So it doesn't actually necessarily suggest that they uh, knew about the process. I mean, I guess if like some stranger sh- shows up and say, hey, I've got Ashley Biden's diary. Right. You might assume it was stolen, but she left it behind in the house. She did.
0: She, so, she was apparently down on her luck. She moved in with this friend of hers who turned out not to be er, much of a friend. Um, didn't pay her any rent left and left all of her stuff behind in the house. And that's how they ended up getting it.
1: And so Project Veritas has been saying, hey, we're allowed to do this. This is this is our first amendment rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, We thought that this diary had been obtained legally. I could not tell you what's if you leave something behind in a house if someone is allowed to then take possession of it or yeah. not. Seems I don't like know. it seems like you can. I don't know.
0: If it's abandoned property, I don't see why not.
1: I guess I don't I'm not going to pretend to know the details no, of it, but that. That would be my guess. that would be my guess. And so it does make it seem as though, you know, they were not part of this conspiracy to to steal the diary. The Trump campaign saying send it to the FBI is a little surprising, I yeah, guess.
0: that's yeah, I don't know. That, that's surprising. They, they were yes. also
1: maybe in the mid in the midst of you know the the Hunter laptop thing.
0: Yes, and that
1: being Russian disinformation. They probably and maybe, didn't want any more trouble. Exactly right. Someone there was smart enough to go. N- no God, keep this away from <laughs> uh, us. <laughs> does, it, does it have a red yeah. star on it? No, get it out of here. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what uh, you know what what comes of this.
0: That's pretty darn funny.
1: Uh, I have a funny headline for you. Tesla demands removal of video of cars hitting child-sized mannequins. Did you see this? Have you seen this over the last couple of weeks? I mean, look, people are always—periodically, there are flare-ups of uh, conversation and concern about Tesla's automated driving or driving assist programs or whatever. Yes. And one of the more recent ones has been that—I guess uh, Tesla's—this is—no, I'm not. I was going to say I'm going to talk off the top of my head, but I'm not going to. But the, the allegations here that you see being made is that Tesla's sensors don't see small things mm-hmm. and they don't see children. Right. Which, to be fair, is something you could also uh, say of SUVs. And I don't know if you've seen some of these horrifying videos of just how far in front of an SUV you have to be to, to be seen if you are like three feet tall Ooh, or no. small. There's just a huge um, wedge like a blind wedge, mm-hmm. right? So like once an SUV, if you're sitting way high up, once you get too close to a small thing, you can't see it. And for some, it's like 12 feet in front of them or something. It's My crazy. God. Anyway. Wow. So there have been lots of videos of Teslas just slamming into child-sized mannequins over and over. Like you put it on auto driving mode <laughs> and it's supposed to not hit. And Tesla doesn't like it. And so they are demanding uh, that this advocacy group take down videos of its cars just uh, slamming into Small mannequins over and over. They've sent a cease and desist letter uh, to the Dawn Project. Uh, that's you know mad at Tesla's full full self driving software.
0: Tesla needs to get its act together before it it can legitimately brag the way that it brags now. Mm-hmm. They really do need to get their act together.
1: Yeah, they have their their safety safety test says that they will indiscriminately mow down children. Pretty, I don't know why that's making me. I don't like the idea of it. It's just sort of funny that you you know, you might be driving around in an automated car that would do that.
0: You've seen the video of course of the guy in a Tesla in the driver's seat sound asleep driving down an interstate highway at 65 miles an hour?
1: No. Oh yeah.
0: It's on YouTube. I saw it a couple of days ago on one of these uh compilation videos wow the guy he's clearly like sound asleep like rem sleep in the front seat of the car and and the people that are taking the video are like my god he's asleep he's actually asleep and they pull up alongside of him and just film him (laughs) that's great
1: (laughs) uh the washington post now had a huge breaking news story about uh the zaporizhia plant Uh, being cut off from ukraine's power grid um so and and causing a power outage in the immediate vicinity. Yeah, so, uh, this is going to be a to bigger pick-
0: and bigger problem.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you can't. I don't know what. I wonder what the update is on um, IAEA inspectors uh, going there because it seems like Russia had said okay. they originally yeah. it had not wanted them to come through Kiev is uh, what I had seen, but right. then Vladimir Putin spoke to Emmanuel Macron, figured okay, whatever we'll get we'll get these inspectors in there. You know, we we want to facilitate that. But it hasn't happened yet. Um, the IAEA is saying they re- they really want
0: to come. That's about yeah, all I can say. Right. Yeah. Did you happen to see this piece in the Washington Post that um, $386 million was spent to retrain veterans? Yeah. This is COVID money? Yeah. And for, for $386 million, only 397 people got jobs? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have seen that headline. Just I mean, this crazy. Is, they've been doing this. There's this ongoing series about the uh, yeah. the incredible waste.
0: Yeah, it's of that phenomenal. Program yeah, and
1: the uh, you know the the levels of fraud, um, but also just the incredible waste. And and what I don't like is that people are going to look at the figures and say this is it's it's bad to do anything for people with this amount of money. This shows that governments shouldn't. Uh, give money to people right. when really you can look at this and go, you know, what what if you had just given that money to vets? You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Instead of like spending it on like, what if you didn't have a, a, a training program? You know, what if you didn't have like a book club and That's seminar right. to try to indirectly improve people's lives? What if you just tried to do it more directly? Right. That's and then right. also, you know, try to find what, a, a lot of what happened is businesses that had uh, the infrastructure, Already, the administrative infrastructure to apply for these loans were able to apply for them and snap them up. Mm-hmm. And it was just like three money. And, I, you know, of course you're going to take it, right?
0: Absolutely. I, so the- I told you about one of my closest friends who employs about a dozen people. He has a, a landscape architecture business in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, he couldn't get the money from, from a small bank. He had to get it from one of the big banks, and the small bank said, no, you should really go to Wells Fargo. We're just not equipped to do this kind of thing. And uh, he went to Wells Fargo. They tried to give him more than he wanted and needed, and he had to keep saying, no, 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 I don't want that much money, thinking he has to pay it back anyway. Yeah. And he genuinely used the money to keep his guys on the payroll and to keep things going through COVID. And then when the government came back and said, well, you know, you can just write it off. it's You don't have to pay it back. He insisted. He said as a, as an American, mm-hmm. he insisted on paying the money back. I mean, I disagree with that. I know. I wouldn't have paid it back. I know myself. I wouldn't have paid it back.
1: I mean, if they're giving he, you the option, right? Yeah.
0: I'll, I'll keep it. Yeah. But
1: yeah, I mean, it was a just—it seems like— more and more, it, it's just if you want to help people, just help them directly. And in this case, it just seems to have been a really bad contractor. Which, again, right. like, well, maybe maybe we need to go back to doing some more stuff in-house, right? Not that I see that the VA can necessarily do job training for every industry for that. Right. But, you know, as a rule, I think that that may—certainly when you're looking at the, the rest of the Defense Department. Agreed. Ooh, we got to get out of here. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. Yes. And thanks to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of John Kiriaku and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.